This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, America remembers the lives lost 21 years ago in the attacks of 9-11 as one of our oldest allies mourns their own loss and enters an uncertain age. On this somber morning, Americans pay tribute to the nearly 3,000 lives lost on that tragic September day. What was destroyed, we have repaired. What was threatened, we fortified. What was attacked, the indomitable spirit has never, ever wavered. What is the state now of America's national security? We'll hear from Frank McKenzie, the recently retired four-star Marine general who oversaw the U.S. departure from Afghanistan as head of U.S. Central Command. And we'll talk with the chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Virginia Democrat Mark Warner, about the current threats to the homeland and the escalating legal fight between the Justice Department and former President Trump over his handling of classified documents. Plus, Three cheers for His Majesty the King. Hip, hip. The United Kingdom ushers in the reign of King Charles III while it grieves the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, a towering figure who held the throne for generations. We'll get the latest on the historic transition from CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell, who is in London, and we'll hear from the British ambassador to the U.S., Dame Karen Pierce, about what's next for the special relationship between our two countries. And a stunning advance this weekend by Ukrainian forces as they reclaim more territory from Russian troops. Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Makarova, will join us for an update. Finally, a growing outcry over a crisis at home. How is it possible that the capital city of a U.S. state in the richest country in the world doesn't have clean running water? We'll get an update from the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Lumumba, on his city's struggles. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. 21 years ago today, Americans united in their grief and in their opposition to extremist forces who attacked the country on September 11th. It is a somber Sunday morning here in the U.S. and in the United Kingdom. We are witnessing a solemn tribute there with crowds lining the streets to pay their respects to Queen Elizabeth II as her coffin makes its way from Balmoral Castle, where she passed away on Thursday, to her official home in Edinburgh, Scotland. We'll have a report from London on an extraordinary period of change in the United Kingdom in just a moment, but we want to begin here in the U.S. 
From Ground Zero in New York to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, and here at the Pentagon in Arlington, Virginia, Americans remembered the nearly 3,000 lives lost on this day 21 years ago. As has become tradition, moments of silence marked each of the devastations of that morning in 2001. Two planes crashed into the World Trade Center towers. The towers collapsed shortly thereafter, a third plane crashing into the Pentagon, and a fourth brought down in a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. In a sobering and now familiar ritual, the names of the fallen were read aloud. President Biden laid a wreath at the Pentagon and made remarks a short time ago. Our intelligence, defense, and counterterrorism professionals in the building behind me and across the government continue their vigilance against terrorist threats that has evolved and spread to new regions of the world. We'll continue to monitor and disrupt those terrorist activities wherever we find them, wherever they exist, and we'll never hesitate to do what's necessary to defend the American people. For a closer look now at the evolving threats to the homeland, we begin this morning with the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Mark Warner of Virginia. Good morning to you, Senator. You know, 9-11 introduced to many Americans for the very first time this sense of vulnerability at home, and it launched the global war on terror. I wonder how vulnerable you think America is now. Are we paying enough attention to the Middle East and to Afghanistan? Well, Margaret, I remember as most Americans do, where they were on 9-11. I was in the middle of a political campaign, and suddenly the differences with my opponent seemed very small in comparison. And our country came together. And in many ways, um, we defeated the terrorists because of the resilience of the American public, because of our intelligence community. And we are safer, better prepared. Um, the stunning thing to me is here we are 20 years later, and... The attack on the symbol of our democracy was not coming from terrorists, but it came from literally insurgents attacking the Capitol on January 6th. So I believe we are stronger. I believe our intelligence community has performed remarkably. I think the threat of terror has diminished. I think we still have new challenges in terms of nation state challenges, Russia and longer term, a technology competition with China. But I do worry about some of the activity in this country were the election deniers, the insurgency that took place on January 6th. That is something I hope we could see that same kind of unity of spirit. As you're pointing out, America came together after 9-11 and we are incredibly divided right now. One thing that is potentially quite explosive is this ongoing investigation of the just, by the Justice Department of the former president and his handling of classified information. You've asked for a briefing from the intelligence community. Given how sensitive this is, why should anything be shared with Congress, given that this is an ongoing investigation? Because as the chairman of the intelligence committee, and I'm very proud of our committee or the last functioning bipartisan committee, I believe, in in the whole Congress. The vice chairman and I have asked for a briefing of the damages that could have arisen from mishandling of this information. And I believe it's our congressional duty to have that oversight. Remember, what's at stake here is the fact that if some of these documents involved human intelligence and that information got out, people will die. If there were penetration of our signals intelligence. Literally years of work could be destroyed. Mm -hmm. We talk about the enormous 
advances our intelligence community has made helping our Ukrainian friends. That comes about because we share intelligence. If there's intelligence that has been shared with us by allies and that is mishandled, all of that could be in jeopardy. Now, we don't know what's in those documents, but I think it is incumbent uh, as soon as we get approval, let me be clear, as soon as we get approval, my understanding is there is some question because of the special master appointment by the judge in, in Florida, whether they can brief at this point. We need clarification on that from that judge as quickly as possible because it is essential that the intelligence committee leadership, at least, gets a briefing of the damage assessment. But that damage assessment... It has been paused, as has the classification review, and it will take some time. So, A, I'm assuming in your answer there, you're saying there have been no promises of a briefing to be scheduled. Is that right? I believe we will get a briefing as soon as there is clarification whether this can be performed or not but why in light should of that, the ruling of the, uh, the judge in Florida. Why should that happen? Because I, I want to get to something you said, which was the last bipartisan committee. Um, you and Marco Rubio, your partner in, in this request for a briefing, put forth this letter asking for the damage assessment. But lately, your colleague's been making some comments that don't sound quite as bipartisan. He's compared the Justice Department to corrupt regimes in Latin America when it comes to this investigation. He's accused DOJ of leaking sensitive details. And he said the only reason to leak it is to create a narrative for political purpose. When information gets shared with Congress, as you know, the accusation is it will get leaked. So, A, it looks like you're losing that bipartisanship. And B, if you brief Congress, isn't it going to leak further and worsen? The record of our intelligence committee of keeping secret secret, that's why the intelligence committee shares information with us. We Remember, this was the committee bipartisan that did the Russia investigation. But you know that your oversight capability, many would argue, including former heads of counterintelligence, the FBI, the, the line is drawn when it's an active investigation. They don't owe I, we, we don't, a briefing. We do not, I do not want uh, any kind of insight into an active investigation by the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. I do want the damage assessment of what would happen to our ability to protect the nation. Here we are 21 years after 9-11. If classified secrets, top secret secrets, are somehow mishandled, I pointed out earlier, people could die, sources of intelligence could disappear, the willingness of our allies to share intelligence could be undermined. And I think we need that assessment to make sure if on a which you will get, but I think we but need it's it going to take some time. I but, think we need it sooner so, than But later. to that point, because it's so sensitive, because the country's so divided, because you already have in many ways a target being put on the back of law enforcement, isn't it more important to get it right, to be deliberate, and not to be fast here? I want the details just no, listen, as much as you do. I do not think we should have, as as the intelligence committee, you know, a briefing on the ongoing investigation. What are responsibility is, is to assess whether there's been damage done to our intelligence collection and maintenance of secrets capacity. That isn't a damage assessment that, frankly, even the judge in Florida has said can continue. Before November? Once we get clarification from the judge in Florida, and again, I don't think we can cherry pick what part of the legal system we like or dislike. I have trust in our legal system. I may not agree with the mm-hmm. decision of the judge in Florida, but I respect our Department of Justice. I respect the FBI. I think they are trying under extraordinarily difficult circumstances to get it right, and we owe them the benefit of the doubt. Senator, thank you for coming on, and I know we're going to continue to track this and any potential impact to national security. Thank you, Mark.
We turn now to retired Marine General Frank McKenzie, who was most recently the commander of U.S. Central Command, which is in charge of defending U.S. interests in the Middle East, Central and South Asia. Last August, he led the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, and we welcome him now. Good morning to you, General. Good morning, Margaret. It's good to be here. I know you were at the Pentagon when it was attacked on 9-11, and as we just laid out, uh, that really came full circle as you executed this withdrawal. I wonder... Um, how you make peace and make sense of all that was lost, not just the 2,400 service people who lost their lives in that conflict, but those who survived, who continued to deal with loss and look at an Afghanistan that is once again under the control of the Taliban. Well, Margaret, over the 21-year arc from 9-11, uh, and I was in the Pentagon, to when we came out of Afghanistan last August, you know, we, we prevented a major attack from occurring on the United States. The cost was not cheap, as you noted. It, uh, we lost a lot of uh, brave young Americans. Our coalition partners lost a lot of their, their soldiers. And, of course, the Afghan people paid a steep price for that. So it wasn't, wasn't a cost-free proposition. But we did manage to prevent another major attack from occurring against the United States during that period of time. Uh, I'm still processing what it means here at the end. Uh, and it would be presumptuous of me to say that it bothers me more than those who lost a loved one uh, at some time in Afghanistan or one of the other theaters where we carried on this battle against a relentless violent foe. Mm -hmm. um, I know you have since leaving uh, your position shared that you advise President Biden not to draw down to zero, to leave a residual force of 2,500 troops in Afghanistan. It's the right of the commander-in-chief to keep his own counsel and reject the advice of his military commanders. If you felt so strongly, why didn't you resign? I had the opportunity to give advice, uh, advice to the president. He heard my advice. It was heard thoughtfully. And that's really all a commander uh, should expect to be able to do under our system. Once the president makes a decision, and you know, for a combatant commander like me, the chain of command is very short. It is the Secretary of Defense, and it is the President of the United States. And once a civilian leadership makes a decision, even though I might disagree with that decision, it is my moral responsibility to execute that order. To resign is not in, is not in, the, uh, in the history. It is, not, it is not something that U.S. officers have typically done, and it sends a very bad signal. It is a political act by an officer who must need and must be and remain apolitical. So even if you disagree with the order, as long as the order is legal, you need to follow that order. If we do anything different, it would be very dangerous to the republic. So while I gave advice, my advice was not followed, uh, I executed that order as well as we were able to do. And I just note that the president makes decisions based on yeah. many factors. My, my recommendation, the Central Command AOR, certainly one of the factors he had to weigh. There were other factors that the president had to weigh as well, and I'm very much aware of that. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think, given your assessment of the threat, um, that the United States is paying enough attention now to the Middle East and to Afghanistan? Well, I, I hope that we are. Um, I think that... Uh, we have very, very limited ability to see into Afghanistan right now. I've said I think we've got certainly less than 2 or 3% of the intelligence capability that we had before we withdrew. Uh, our interest in Afghanistan is preventing al-Qaeda or ISIS 
from regenerating and being able to conduct an attack on our homeland or the homelands of our friends and partners. And our ability to do that has certainly been gravely reduced. Now the fact that we took a strike against Zawahiri, uh, and that was a very good and proper action, uh, it, that, that's good news. Uh, I would note that's one strike in a year. Uh, and I'll just come back. I would be careful about drawing conclusions about our ability to operate effectively in Afghanistan uh, in a counterterrorism sense based on that single operation. You're talking about the uh, CIA drone strike that took out the leader of al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawahiri, in July. Um, but the administration would point to that and say, look, we can counter the terror threat without a military footprint. So are we at the right balance right now of keeping the homeland safe? Do you agree with their assessment um, that ISIS and al-Qaeda do not presently uh, pose a threat of being able to carry out an attack here? When I, when I, left, uh, when I left active duty, it was our assessment that uh, if, we, if we left Afghanistan, if the Afghan government fell, if the Taliban took over, then over a period of time, both al-Qaeda and ISIS would be able to regenerate. I, that is still my opinion today. Uh, it, you know, it's going to take a little time for them to do that. But I think what's most concerning about the, the CIA strike that you mentioned was the fact that he was living in, in very good accommodations in downtown Kabul. Mm -hmm. And that should give us all pause and also speak directly uh, to the ill intent of the Taliban in negotiating with us as we worked with the Doha Agreement, which was the attempt to find an end to the war in Afghanistan. I think it, it's a manifest example of their, uh, of their inability to keep their word. What I hear you saying there is that um, the Trump administration bears responsibility for the deal it brokered with the Taliban, the Doha agreement. So I think the, the reason that we left Afghanistan and the reason the Afghan government fell was that two presidents, President Trump and President Biden, both had as a very high objective to, to leave Afghanistan. So you had continuity of purpose yeah. across two administrations. Now, the Doha agreement, had we, uh, had we held the Taliban to the conditionality that was a critical part of it, it could have been a useful vehicle for moving forward. But we did not hold the Taliban to the, the conditions that they, that they said they would observe. And, that's, that, yeah. and because of that, no agreement's gonna be good. Uh, the Biden administration has not released any public version of an after-action report of what went wrong. This was a big black eye. Uh, I don't have to tell you that, how this uh, withdrawal happened. Do you think this assessment should be made public? And does the fact it is not public now suggest to you that any politics is at play? Uh don't know, Margaret. I would tell you that I, I participated before I left active duty in that after-action review. I, we did a number of those inside CENTCOM, and then I was also uh, interviewed several times for the review that I believe is still working within the, inside the Department of Defense. I think it's probably a good thing to release as much of that review as you can. Obviously, there are going to be, there are going to be sensitive intelligence components to that, and you're, and, but I think you could probably excise some of those and still, I think the American people want to know what happened, and I think that's a reasonable thing to do. We will continue to press for that, and thank you for your insights today. Retired, retired General Frank McKenzie, uh, we want to be back in a moment with more Face the Nation. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. 
FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Today, the United Kingdom is in mourning for Queen Elizabeth, its longest-serving monarch, who will be laid to rest next Monday. World leaders are preparing to travel there in the coming days to pay their respects to her memory and to her son, King Charles III. Today, he will be formally proclaimed King of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. CBS Evening News anchor Nora O'Donnell is there in London. Nora? Good morning, Margaret. Yeah, it has been an incredibly moving morning here for many in England as Queen Elizabeth II begins her long journey home. This morning we saw her oak coffin covered with the royal standard of Scotland beginning its slow six-hour journey from Balmoral Castle to the country's capital of Edinburgh. There were tens of thousands of people lining the roads in tribute to the Queen. The coffin will then rest in the throne room of the Palace of Holyrood, that is Holyrood House. That's actually the official residence of the British monarch in Scotland until Monday afternoon. Then King Charles III and the Queen Consort will arrive Monday as the coffin moves to St. Giles Cathedral, where she will lie in state. And then the new sovereign will then make a tour of the countries that make up the United Kingdom, including Ireland, before the funeral next Monday on September 19th. And you know, Margaret, there has been much said about the people's sentimental attachment to the monarch, the Commonwealth's matriarch, but her reign marked not just for its constancy, but its length of 70 years, and some said, of course, like a living link to World War II. So it's perhaps fitting that the Queen's state funeral will be the first in Britain since Winston Churchill in 1965. And Nora, I can see behind you there at Buckingham Palace the, the memorials and the outpouring uh, of, of sympathy. I, I wonder what it's like for you being on the ground in what is truly a historic moment. It is, and you're right. So many people here, actually the king is holding meetings here today, and also people were touched to see the now Prince and Princess of Wales spend nearly an hour meeting with people outside Windsor Castle. A royal source says that Prince William invited his brother, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Harry and Meghan, to join them. And it is the first time we've seen the four together in two years. And the academics here in the papers this morning are saying this is a moment that in some ways will never be replicated. A woman whose reign was historic in length, revered for her grace and strength, was also known for her soft power. 
meeting 13 U.S. presidents, countless world leaders, giving advice and guidance to 15 prime ministers here. And as you know quite well, Margaret, being the first British sovereign to visit Ireland in a century and helping calm tensions there. So many people noting this passing of an era and, of course, the world leaders expected to be here next week, uh, the following week, uh, to mourn her at Westminster Abbey. Margaret. Nora, thank you for your reporting there, and we'll continue to cover that throughout CBS News programs. We're joined now by Dame Karen Pierce, the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States and Madam Ambassador. Welcome to Face the Nation and our condolences to you and your country. Thank you very much. You know, President Biden uh, reminded the country that Queen Elizabeth said grief is the price we pay for love, and she said it after the attacks of 9-11. Um, I wonder, as you look around this town and you see Union Jacks down Pennsylvania Avenue, you have this outpouring of sympathy. Um, has it surprised you how strong the reaction has been? Well, could I start, Margaret, by also expressing my condolences to the American people on the anniversary of, of 9-11? Uh, as you say, that's, that is what the Queen said. She also asked that the British institutions fly the American flag uh, after 9-11 and on the 10th and 20th uh, anniversaries. So I think it's very good uh, that the mayor and others have put up the British flags. It's very kind of them. We appreciate it very much. And yes, I think we, we were a little bit surprised by quite how many Americans uh, have rallied, uh, have come to the embassy to pay their respects, have sent us messages. We were honoured by the president coming to the embassy, uh, the vice president and Secretary Blinken. Uh, this is what close allies do. They support each other. Uh, nevertheless, it's, it's a very moving thing to see. And President Biden, other world leaders have said they will come to the United Kingdom for uh, the, the funeral next Monday. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We continue our conversation now with the United Kingdom's ambassador to the United States, Dame Karen Pierce. It's so good to have you here at such a key moment. Um, and I wonder, as King Charles III, and we start to see him in this role on the throne, what will change about the contours of the kingdom? And I ask that because, as I'm sure you've seen, there's been a lot written uh, in recent days. In the New York Times, there was a columnist, Maya Jasnoff, who's a, a British historian or writes about the uh, empire. And she said that the Commonwealth... Um, really kind of glosses over some of the more bloody forms of British colonialism. She said, in her role as queen, Elizabeth helped obscure a bloody history of decolonization whose proportions and legacies have yet to be adequately acknowledged. It sort of kicked off a debate here. And I wonder how you think King Charles will deal with that. Is he mindful of things like this? He's very politically aware and astute and very much aware of the world uh, around him. Uh, I think his first task uh, will be to go around the constituent parts of the UK, uh, promoting a message of unity, uh, one of respect for the late Queen, but also one of renewal. Uh, he'll want to show stability in unity and continuity, uh, but he has made no secret of the fact there are things he'd like to modernise. So we'll wait and see what those are. Uh, he's a huge supporter of the Commonwealth. Uh, he becomes head of the Commonwealth. Uh, 
uh, and that was decided a few years ago. Uh, he has gone on record as saying it doesn't matter uh, what sort of government you have in the Commonwealth, whether you have a monarchy, whether you have a republic, uh, whether you have some other form, uh, you are very welcome in the Commonwealth. And he wants to do what he can to strengthen that partnership of equal, equal nations. And I want to stress uh, the equal. Um, we can't pretend we have a different history. Mm -hmm. uh, there are good things and bad, and we need to, to talk about them. Uh, but I think that assessment is, is, is too negative. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say that one of the overwhelmingly positive things that came out of the Queen's 70 years was the transition uh, from empire to Commonwealth, uh, was the transition to having a fellowship of sovereign equal nations who will come together uh, every two years, uh, head of government and head of state level, and who do an awful lot, e.g. on trade, uh, in between. So I think that's a positive uh, legacy, and I think most countries in the Commonwealth would feel that. The UK has had such tremendous change. Four prime ministers in the past six years, a new prime minister just in recent days as well, Liz Truss. Um, I want to ask you about the U.S.-U.K. relationship because President Biden has made clear when it comes to uh, relations for him, um, protecting the peace in Northern Ireland is of utmost importance. And this looks like it could be a point of difference um, because the U.S. has warned the U.K. not to hold a vote on this legislation that could affect the creation or not of a hard border between North and South Ireland. Do you believe that vote will happen? Um, and what happens to U.S. relations if that goes ahead? Uh, so I think the first thing to say is that the president had a very warm discussion with the prime minister when she was first appointed. They talked about the special relationship. They talked about what Britain and the US can do together, promoting democracy and open societies around the world and the need to push back uh, on authoritarianism. So as the Queen herself said, what brings us together is, is far stronger than mm -hmm. any individual issue that may divide us. Uh, we too in Britain, the prime minister, uh, wants to preserve the Good Friday peace agreement in Northern Ireland. Uh, mm -hmm. She and the president uh, and the Irish government absolutely share that aim. But she's the also talked about scrapping parts of that agreement with the EU. That well, that is a, that a particular agreement about trade mm -hmm. so that um, Northern Ireland can trade with Ireland, which remains in the European Union, and the mainland of Great Britain can also trade with, with Northern Ireland as part of mm -hmm. the United Kingdom. And the difficulty arises precisely because we are determined to avoid a hard border mm -hmm. between Northern Ireland and Ireland. We, we accept that's an enormous gain of the Good Friday Agreement. It is hard to introduce trading arrangements that protect the integrity of the EU single market and protect the integrity of the United Kingdom right. single market when you haven't got a border, but we don't want to introduce a border. The legislation going through Parliament is not about a border. Mm -hmm. It's about contingency measures that the government could take if it needed to, right. if we cannot reach a negotiated settlement with the EU to make the passage of goods between Northern Ireland and Ireland smoother than it is now. Mm -hmm. There's lots of disruption to communities. Uh, they can't get the goods and medicine in Northern Ireland that they need. Government needs to sort this out. There are a lot of challenges the prime minister faces, including economic ones, in large part because of Russia's war on Ukraine. Do you see political risk to the alliance in the months ahead? Uh, no, I think the alliance, the NATO alliance, has shown that it is stronger than ever. Uh, there has been a remarkably united 
uh, response to President Putin's invasion. The same is true as the transatlantic uh, relationship between Europe as a whole and, and the United States more broadly. Uh, leaders will be able to get together in the forthcoming UN General Assembly, where I think you'll see more outpourings of support for Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no doubt there is a cost of living crisis that's not unique to Britain. Uh, we have introduced measures around energy bills and energy yes. prices to try and help ordinary households. And the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, our Treasury Secretary, was here recently uh, talking to Secretary Yellen. Uh, we're looking together at how we can share best practice in what to do to help households. Well, we will continue to follow closely uh, in the coming days and weeks. Thank you so much, Thank you. Um, Ambassador. We'll be right back. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. A stunning retreat by Russia overnight as Ukrainian forces claw back parts of the south and east of their country. And as the war enters its 200th day, there is another significant development. This morning, engineers at Europe's largest nuclear power plant are shutting down the last operational reactor in an attempt to lessen the chance of catastrophe. CBS News foreign correspondent Deborah Pata reports from Kyiv. It's happening with lightning speed. Advancing Ukrainian troops in the northeast Kharkiv region are taking back lost territory. Despite casualties along the way, the gains have been rapid and dramatic. And it's taken everyone by surprise. Ukraine kept the operation a tightly guarded secret. For now, journalists have been banned from reporting from the front line. But across the region, the blue and yellow flag has been raised in towns and villages occupied for more than half a year. Victory in Kupiansk, a crucial logistics hub for Russia, as Ukraine rips down all traces of the invading forces. In liberated Balaklia, jubilation and tears. And the words these residents have waited so long to hear Everything's going to be okay, says the soldier. For six months we prayed you would save us, sobs this woman. It's a humiliating defeat for Vladimir Putin's men who have been forced to beat a hasty retreat. And a clumsy attempt to save face from Moscow, who says it's withdrawing to reinforce troops in Donetsk. Ukraine has been emboldened by the steady supply of Western military aid. 
but it needs more to keep the momentum going, and says the mayor of the now occupied Melitopol, Ivan Fedorov. But it depends how quickly our partners will give us weapons, how quickly our partners will give us heavy equipment military. Right now, Russia still holds around a fifth of this country. Nobody expects this to be over quickly, but Ukrainians are daring to hope today that the war could be starting to swing their way. These are the most significant battlefield successes since they crushed Russia's attempt to seize Kiev at the start of this nearly seven-month-long war. Margaret? Deborah Pada in Kiev, thank you. And we are joined now once again by Ukraine's ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova. Madam Ambassador, good morning to you. An incredible past few days for your country. Um, I wonder, as you have this progress, if concern is growing that Russia will resort to more brutality to respond to the success Ukraine has had. Well, our 200 days fall on the September 11. And uh, we know this pain and we feel this pain in Ukraine. We know how is it when terrorists attack you at home. So we always have to keep in mind that Russia still can do a lot of damage. But we don't have any other choice. We will advance. As we said before, we will not surrender. And we will liberate all Ukraine because this is what we have to do, not only to restore our territorial integrity, but to save all of our people who are under occupation. And we see from the footage from more than 1,200 square miles, which have been liberated during the past uh, literally eight days, uh, the most uh, fast counteroffensive since the World War II. We see how they are meeting and greeting our armed forces. And we also unfortunately see already the signs of the brutal war crimes that have been committed there, no different from what we saw after we liberated the Kiev Oblast. So we have to win. And this counteroffensive shows that we can win. And we are repeating the success that we had in the Kiev Oblast. Retired General Ben Hodges told our David Martin that Ukraine's military could push Russia back to the borders that existed pre-February 24th when the invasion happened. Um, and that could happen before the end of the year. Do you agree with that timeline? Again, uh, this operation was possible because of the resolve of the armed forces, because our uh, commanding commanders from the president to every commander in the battlefield are so devoted to the victory, but also because 40 million of Ukrainians are supporting this effort and fighting for, for our country. But more importantly, because our partners have increased all the support and we're getting more and more of the weapons and equipment that is so needed for that. Mm -hmm. So, of course, we would like to liberate all Ukraine as soon as possible to stop the suffering of the people and to restore our sovereignty. <clears throat> but whether it will be possible before the end of the year, we, we are ready to do it before the end of the year. And hopefully we will have everything we need to do so. The Biden administration um, made some announcements of further support. $2.2 billion in long-term military financing for Ukraine and its neighbors. This was just in the past week. $675 million package of heavy weapons. Your foreign minister tweeted this morning that now it's about schedule, schedule, and schedule. So you're getting these pledges. Is there a complaint it's not arriving fast enough? We don't have any complaints. If you look at... Uh August and September, uh, we see that the announcements are very regular. 
and we're getting a lot of announcements on a weekly basis. We also see, and it's very important, and it has been a highlight of this uh, Secretary Blinken's visit to Kyiv, that we're not only talking about what is necessary right now for us to win today, but we are increasingly discussing the long-term support and everything that we need in order to build what we call the enduring strength. So the USAI package that was announced, $3 billion, that was announced in, on the Independence Day, and this $2.2 billion, out of which uh, about $1 billion will go to Ukraine in the foreign uh, financing, is not only what we need now, but also what we will need in the coming months and years in order to be able to defend ourselves. How much longer does this war last? It will last until we win. And we definitely would like it to be shorter because the Russians are not only attacking us, they're attacking Europe, the energy crisis, the food crisis, everything they're trying to create in order to not only attack Ukraine, but every democracy that is together with us fighting for the democracy now. Mm -hmm. So the faster we do it, the, the faster we will return to rebuilding and renovating our country, but also to some kind of normal life in Europe and globally. Now, how, how should people understand what is happening now with the nuclear reactor in Ukraine? Um, the situation is totally unacceptable from any type of international standpoint. The Russian armed forces that shouldn't be in Ukraine in the first place and definitely shouldn't be at the nuclear plant, which is the largest nuclear plant in Europe, are putting in danger the lives not only of Ukrainians, but also the whole uh, region by being there and doing the But shutting that, down the reactor, does that avert catastrophe? Well, this is, this is, we're trying everything possible. And Ukrainians who are there at the station, despite of the fact that they're there under the guns all the time, trying to do everything possible to minimize the risks. Mm -hmm. So we are forced to do it. We are forced to shut it down. It's not a complete uh, resolution. The complete resolution is to, for Russians to get out, to implement the recommendations of the UAIA, and to demilitarize the plant, which means that Russians should leave. That will bring their safety. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, again, the Ukrainian personnel there is doing everything possible in order to avert any type of catastrophes. The last time you were here in April, you told us that there were roughly 91,000 Ukrainian children who had been taken from their families and brought into Russia. Has there been any progress in bringing them home? You asked for the U.S. to help with this. We are asking everyone, and unfortunately with this, uh, uh, fortunately with the counteroffensive, but we see already that during the counteroffensives, Russian, uh, Russians are trying to move more kids from the territories which were liberated prior to the liberations to Russia. Mm -hmm. So this issue of identifying and finding every children that Russian uh, stolen from us yeah. and return them back safely is still one of the top priorities. And hopefully, after we win, we will be able to get them all back. Very quickly, should we expect your president to come to the United Nations in the coming days in person? Can he leave? Well, it all depends on the situation on the ground. So we cannot say anything right now, but hopefully we will be able to have more good news from Ukraine and more territories to return home. That would be significant. Thank you, Madam Thank Ambassador. You. We'll be right back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We turn now to the continued efforts to restore clean water to the roughly 150,000 residents of Jackson, Mississippi. The city's mayor, Shokwe Lumumba, joins us now live from Jackson. And Mr. Mayor, we welcome you to the program You don't get more basic governance than running water. Um, When can your residents turn on the faucet and not have to worry? Well, first and foremost, Margaret, thank you for having me and thank you for lifting this circumstance up. Uh, Fortunately, we have uh, some level of good news to report that all residents have had water pressure restored to them. Uh, They have yet to have the boil water notice lifted and so there are still concerns around the consumption of that water. Uh, Right now, as many repairs and adjustments are taking place uh, in the triage period of of, uh, where we are at the water treatment facility, there's also investigatory sampling taking place. And so we believe that it's a matter of days, not weeks, before that boil water notice can be lifted. Uh, But I would note this, that we have been here before uh, where we've been able to restore pressure. We've been able to lift boil water notices. Uh, But without the significant capital improvements to take place, Mm -hmm. it still is a matter of if, not when, these things will happen again. I want to talk to you about that. When, not if. I apologize. I I want to talk to you about that capital in a moment. But uh, we also have learned that there is now a federal probe of the drinking water crisis. Um, The spokesperson for the EPA's inspector general told our Avery Miller that the investigators are already on the ground in your city to speak to local officials. Um, Do you know the scope of this? Are your actions as mayor being investigated? Uh, Well, first and foremost, I think that any time you have an event of this severity take place, then you should expect uh, more questions and more investigation. And I think we should be open to that. No, no one has talked to me. I do not know the scope nor the timeline in which they're investigating. Uh, But I can share that that to the extent that uh, they will be speaking to city employees, uh, I will direct them to cooperate with any investigation. We look forward to more information uh, Mm -hmm. so that we can get beyond this. Well, there was a similar investigation in Flint, Michigan, as you know, years ago. It ultimately led to nine indictments. Um, do you expect similar action mm-hmm. in your city? Well, I, I can't speak to uh, the, the analogous nature of the Flint, Michigan circumstance in Jackson. Uh, I can share with you that, that I am unaware of any criminal activity on behalf of individuals here in the city of Jackson. Uh, however, uh, what we do is what we do want is a greater mm-hmm. understanding of where failures have been taking place. Uh, we know that our administration and in fact administrations past have been pushing for uh, corrective action to take place for a long time. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the need for capital. Uh, in, in March 2021, federal government sent 42 million directly to the city as part of the American Rescue Plan. In August 2021, President Biden said this when he signed off on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. 
Never again can we allow what happened in Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi. Can never let it happen again. It's happening again. In fact, it's getting worse. Where's the money? Mm-hmm. Why isn't it? Well, go ahead. Well, first and foremost, I've, I've had very extensive discussions with the president and the vice president concerning the federal government's desire to help, and we look forward to that. Uh, we have committed the grand majority of our ARPA funds uh, towards our infrastructure. Uh, not only at the water treatment facility, but but distribution lines. Uh, we've spent $8 million on, on one pipe alone to South Jackson, which is disproportionately affected. Uh, it is also critical for people to know that the city of Jackson didn't get $42 million at one time. Uh, merely uh, a little over a month ago, we got our second tranche of the funds. Uh, we have made uh, a commitment to spend uh, all uh, that the remaining dollars. There, there was some choice to spend some towards uh, public safety uh, issues. Uh, and so we are committing the lion's share, the overwhelming majority of our funds towards this challenge. However, it is insufficient to meet the great need of 30 years of, of deferred uh, maintenance and accumulated challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it will take a coordinated effort on not only the local, state, but federal uh, levels as well. And what does that mean? Federal taxpayer dollars have been allocated here. Why can't the White House get that to you faster? Well, I believe that there is a full intent to do so. Uh, I think that there is a process uh, by which uh, you identify the different pockets in which the money lies and, and creativity needing to take place. Uh, I can share with you that there has been uh, full cooperation and communication uh, at the highest levels, uh, whether it's the administrator of the EPA, uh, Michael Regan, who, who speaks to me uh, consistently about their effort and desire to help, uh, mm-hmm. whether we're talking about the czar of the infrastructure bill himself, Mitch Landrew, uh, we've all been in communication and about the timeline in which certain portals open. I, I think that a major yeah. portal that, that is necessary to fund Jackson opens in October. Do you believe that, as you've said in the past, state lawmakers have been racist in their treatment of your city? Yeah. Well, I'll say this. Uh, I'm not backing down from, from any, you know, characterizations that I've made. I think that they, they were made in honesty. However, uh, I think that this is a time to focus on the solutions for our residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, when people go long, prolonged periods of time without water pressure uh, and even longer periods of time without uh, yeah. an ability to consume it, uh, they really aren't trying to be bogged down in, in the political disputes that ensue. Uh, they just want solutions, and that's, that's where we're focused. Understood, and we will continue to track what is happening in Jackson. Good luck to you, Mr. Mayor. We'll be right back. That's it for today. Thank you for watching. I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Virginia Democratic Senator Mark Warner, retired commander of U.S. Central Command, General Frank McKenzie, British Ambassador to the United States, Dame Karen Pierce, Ukrainian Ambassador to the United States, Oksana Markarova, and the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, Chokwe Lumumba. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News app at 12 p.m. on Sundays, and it's available on demand on Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. 
Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor's back and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.